All right, well, here we go. So, we're talking about disciple with a big L. You know, I looked at that thing, and I looked at that thing, and I looked at that thing, and I thought, what the heck is that L all about? And then I uh, landed in Australia, and I went, oh, that's right, they have L plates. That's what it is. But anyway, the revelation didn't come to me until I was on the anointed soil. Shaba. <laughs> well, it's an old joke. It's been told many times before. Um, but Jesus died. He rose again and He ascended to the Father. And when He got to heaven's gate, He was met by some angels. And the angel said, well, what if that fails? He said, I don't have a plan B. Three, five, seven, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Never mind the rest of you. You can take the night off. If we just take these here, this is all he left to engage the world. Um, population geneticists, they, they vary in their estimates, but on the low end, they think that since the history of uh, man began, there have been 70 billion, with a B, billion people that have lived, and on the high end, 106 billion. Pick any number in there you want, doesn't really matter. 12 against that, that's the, that's the master's plan. So this discipleship thing, it's pretty critical to the needs of the hour. And here's what Jesus had to say about discipleship. I'm looking at Luke chapter 14, starting in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Him and He turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to Me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be My disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after Me cannot be My disciple. For which of you desiring to build a tower does not first sit down and count the cost whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any of one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now this here that we just read, this is not what you call the happy God Gospel. This is the sobering Gospel of the Lord as it pertains to this thing that we call discipleship from which there is no plan B. So what we're going to discuss tonight, what we're going to talk about tomorrow, this is like, this is the stuff. This is the serious 
business of where the rubber meets the road. So with that, we should talk about what we're going to do over the next three sessions. We're going to talk tonight about what is a disciple. Tomorrow morning, we'll talk about the discipleship loop, characteristics and basic skills. Now, I, I'll just say this, I'll plug my own session. You really want to be here tomorrow. You really do. Honest to God, you really want to be here tomorrow. But I'll warn you, I am going to crack you over the head with a two-by-four. Because a lot of our Christianity right now is anemic and worthless. It is worth nothing and is worthy only to be trodden underfoot by men. It is fit for the manure pile only. We're going to talk about that. And I know that's not the happy God message, but it's, it's where we are right now. So tomorrow we'll talk about basic character and skills of a disciple. This is stuff that a generation ago might have been emphasized in a lot of churches, but in our time, not at all really. I mean, I could say not so much, but effectively not much at all. And then we'll finish out by talking about replication and the discipleship lifestyle. It'll get a little more fun there. <laughs> um, but I, I really, I really want to say, you know, you want to be here tomorrow morning. So, in this passage that we started out by reading, great crowds are accompanying Jesus. They're following Him. And it doesn't say how big these great crowds are, but we know a little bit about Jesus' ministry. We know at one time He fed 5,000 men, and of course there would have probably been a comparable number of women and who knows how many children. That particular meeting could have easily beat 30,000 people. So you could have filled a footy arena with it. On another occasion, 4,000 men were fed, so... Again, you know, same sort of range of numbers. So great crowds were accompanying them, and as, as they're following him, he turns, and he sees behind him this huge crowd, and if you will, your Bible probably says what mine says, the cost of discipleship as the descriptor for this passage. Strike that with your pen and put thinning the herd. Because that's what Jesus is about to do here. First thing he says is, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and mothers and sisters, and yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. So, if you want to say it this way, this passage speaks of the three P's that, that destroy discipleship. Three P's. I have another message on four P's of releasing the power of God. So I don't know what it is with me and P's, but when I was in Sydney with David Crabtree earlier this year, he and David Wagner and I got on this roll and I think by the time we finished the conference, we had a 27P paradigm for releasing the power of God. We got a lot of laughs out of it too. Anyway, okay, so three Ps. First one is uh, primacy. The primacy of family, the primacy of relationships, the primacy of self. These are the things that get in the way. And, and I dare say that in our modern world, and it, as, it is now as it has always been, one of the greatest obstacles to people walking with Christ, to finishing the race well, is this simple thing. They put their human relationships, whichever one it may be, or maybe more than one, ahead of Him. And oftentimes that relationship is, well, themselves. That's why He even says, and even His own life. Now this word hate, you know, it's attracted a lot of attention through the years. Jesus is not a hater. You know, we're not going to call him a family phobe. Um, but what he's really saying is, you can't have a relationship that takes precedence over me, and that includes your own children. 
Now that might not be a problem in this church, but I can tell you there are many people who their children are an idol to them and they, they pull back at the point of the interface between their faith and their children. Or similarly with their spouse. You know, when I was in Taiwan about a month ago, um, I did some ministry with a woman and she was heavily, heavily demonized. And as we were delivering her of her demons, and it, it took a while, it was not just a straight up, uh, you know, drop the bomb and it's over kind of deliverance. Um, it, it came out in the conversation that she had been counseled by a major denomination. I won't say which one only because I don't know where the recordings will go and I, I try not to take shots at other movements and denominations and so forth. But, but if I said the name, you would certainly know it. This major denomination had counseled her as they have counseled many others and said, it's okay to go ahead and eat food sacrificed to an idol because you are preserving your family. Now this is diametrically opposed to the teaching of Scripture as it pertains to the eating of meat, food, sacrificed to an idol found in 1 Corinthians 10, chapter, uh, chapter 10 and in particular verse 20, but really the whole chapter deals with this. And so here we have a major denomination teaching something that's 180 degrees out of phase with the Scripture all in the name of preserving the family. And what do you get? You get a discipleship that's worth nothing. You get a Christianity that's worth nothing. If you're going to live that Christianity, you might as well just chuck it out and just go live the life that you want to leave anyway. And so, we had to address that matter. I know in our day there are many denominations teaching a lot of things that don't really square with the Scripture, but that one I wasn't really expecting, not in a culture like Taiwan. So, your father can't be ahead of you. Your mother can't be ahead of you. Kirk, yep, sorry to tell you, David. <laughs> You're not number one. And neither's Carol. Nicole, too bad for you. You're not here tonight anyway, but if you watch the, the video later. Children, where's Sarah? She's around here somewhere. Oh, it's not Sarah, it's Caitlin, but anyway. Ah, there they are. Okay, yeah, right. If you have these relationships ahead of me, you can't be my disciple. Number two, he addresses the matter of comfort. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. We live in a day where cult, um, comfort, and I'll just say the, the general pleasures of life, are running rampant. And if you will, I'm referring now to John Bunyan's book, Pilgrim's Progress. He speaks of the character Christian who comes to a place called Vanity Fair. And everybody is pursuing the pleasures of life. And Bunyan goes to great length describing them all. And Christian very nearly dies at Vanity Fair. And he certainly loses sight of the path until a helper comes along to assist him and to pull him out of what he has fallen into. If you've never read Pilgrim's Progress, for over a hundred years it was the best-selling book on the planet next to the Bible itself. And you would do yourself a huge favor to turn off the telly, get that book, and read it. It would, it would scrub your soul of a lot of toxic waste. He goes on, he says, For which of you desiring to build a tower does not sit down and count the cost? basically to complete it, and then he takes that same idea and reiterates it with the uh, parable of 
the king wants to go out to war, he takes stock of whether his 10,000-man army can beat a 20,000-man army coming against him. He's speaking of planning. So he's got primacy of relationships, pathos, which is Latin for pain, and planning. Those are our three Ps. And the issues are family relationships, comfort, and I'll just say impulsiveness. Making a snap decision that you're not prepared to carry out for a lifetime. That's really the three things Jesus is speaking to. He says, if any of these goes wrong, your discipleship is crap. Not supposed to say that in church, I guess, but this is Australian. You guys get away with that. So there you go. So what is a disciple? Obviously, Jesus values it. And he says, if you don't get it right, you might as well just bag the whole thing and, and walk away. So why are we doing a conference or a seminar on discipleship? Well, first of all, it's probably the greatest need of the hour. It's probably the greatest need of the hour. We don't need a new apostolic reformation as great as we need discipleship. We don't need the next prophetic word from whichever prophet happens to roll through town as much as we need discipleship. And yet the term itself seems oddly out of date, maybe like a fading sepia document reminiscent of some bygone era of Christianity. So today we have many conferences, many speakers that are envisioning. They are hopefully exhilarating and often they have a very strategic view of what's coming. In fact, that's mostly what they do. They tell us the what. They tell us what is coming our way, but they're, they're long on excitement and somewhat short on detail. They're long on vision, short on execution. But one of the things I learned being a corporate strategist during the years that I was doing that, I, had, I led corporate strategy for two Fortune 500 companies. And I learned a lot about corporate strategy. I learned a lot about business execution. I learned a lot about making things that don't exist come into being. And the one thing I learned more than anything is that good strategy is tactical and very detailed. And so when we have all these big visions about the great, grand, and coming revival, it's not that I don't believe in them. It's that I don't hear enough detail to satisfy me. And so fewer teaching execution telling us how to get to the goal of the great and grand and glorious revival. That's why I want you to be here tomorrow, because I want to talk about, wait for it, 30 key things that go with a life of discipleship. And you might say, 30 things, that's a lot. Yeah, well, no one ever said this was easy. And, you know, most of the competencies of life, David, you're a business executive, I'll call you out. You're a business executive, and you've been at it for many years, and before that, you were a pastor for many years. Being successful at what you've done, it required at least 30 things done well. Most of them simultaneously. So this business of being a disciple, although Jesus said His burden is easy and His yoke is light, and it is, that doesn't mean that it's just something that just falls into your lap. We want to be practitioners of the craft, if you want to say it that way. So few teach execution, but even fewer are telling us why. Why? Why should we be disciples? Well, the primary reason I've already told you, if we aren't truly disciples in the right sense, then give up on Christianity. Just walk away from it forever. As Paul said, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. There'll be a price to pay on Judgment Day, but that's really the counsel of Scripture. So disciple, here we've used the word a bunch. What does it mean? Well, the Greek word is mathetes, and it's commonly said that it means learner, but if you look it up, 
the better word for it is pupil. And there is a somewhat modest distinction between learner and pupil. A learner is an acquirer of knowledge. He or she may not actually use it. I'm going to pick on Caitlin. She came home from an exam today and dumped everything in the bin. That's not using knowledge. That's discarding it. But a, but a pupil now, what does a pupil do? A pupil, a, a pupil applies herself or her, himself to that which is being studied with the objective of not only retaining it, but maybe somewhere down the road actually using it. And so it somehow becomes part of that wider group of information that informs how we view the world and, and even how we live out our life. So when Kirk put up the artwork disciple with the big L for the L plates, it's suggesting that, well, all of us begin somewhere in the, in the track of discipleship, but we actually have a lifelong learning process because Kirk's long since lost his L plates, David's long since lost his L plates, Kate's long since, David, Jody Ann, you know, I can go around, name people around the room, Michael and Anne Marie, John, you guys have all lost your L plates a long time ago, but you actually haven't stopped learning how to drive. You know, you're, you're keeping your shills, shills scarp, your skills sharp. Um, maybe from time to time, uh, the government invites you to go to a learning experience where you brush up on your skills. We call that traffic school in the United States. And you pay a handsome sum for that great privilege. Um, but the point is, you never really stop learning to be a safe driver. You never stop learning to be a defensive driver. You never stop learning to look out for cars that may be in your blind spot or coming at you from whatever direction. And so the learning of a disciple is meant to be lifelong. This is particularly why Jesus talks about this business of tower building and war fighting. He's saying you dare not be short-sighted about this. Don't get into this for two years, three years, five years. Make this a lifelong pursuit. In the New Testament, the word Christian occurs a mere three times. Three lonely times in the entire of the New Testament. The word believer occurs 26 times, but the word disciple occurs more than 250 times. Now, the takeaway from that should be pretty obvious, but in case it's not, I'll make it obvious. God views Christianity through the lens of discipleship. In His mind, to be a true and authentic Christian, to be a true and authentic believer, is to be a disciple, and anything less than that isn't that. And for many of us, there are gaps we may not even realize in our lives between what God views as a disciple and what we are living. We hope to highlight some of those tomorrow so we can mind the gap. Disciples are committed followers. They are students. They are pupils of Jesus. And they both practice His teachings in their own lives and they disseminate them through the world. Now in the vineyard tradition, I might say more broadly in the awakened church tradition in what we call revival land, um, there's also this business of practicing the things of God. Uh, and we'll speak to that tomorrow. But the point is, discipleship always begins at home. 
Discipleship always begins right where we live, and I do mean right under your own roof. If your discipleship can't be practiced in the context of your own family, whatever it is that you have for family, <coughs> well, Paul says it this way, you've denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. You're worse than an unbeliever. So it starts at home, and then it continues maybe in your own church. It should include your community, and as John Wimber was famous for saying, there's nothing magical about a plane ride. Lots of people say, you know, they're going to go to Myanmar, or they're going to go to China, or to North Korea or something, and they're going to do the work of the Lord, and nothing wrong with that if the Spirit of God is calling you, but, but let it begin here. Let it begin at home. So with a disciple, John 14, 15, Jesus said, if you love me, keep my commandments. So biblically speaking, true love of the Master is shown through obedience. We claim to love God without obeying His Word, living it out in our lives, then our love is actually a fiction. What we claim as discipleship isn't really discipleship. So we're going to begin with the why question. I said even fewer are answering the why question. There's a, there's a corporate strategist. He's making big money right now. Um, when I flew into Melbourne yesterday, I was uh, going you know, under one of the tunnels and over the overhead bar they had a picture of him he's coming to Melbourne he'll be in Sydney he's then going to come to Brisbane his name's Simon Sinek you can look him up on YouTube you can look at his TED talks I'm a huge fan of Simon Sinek and uh, his his whole shtick is this begin with why 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 do we want to be disciples well we want to be disciples because if we practice a Christianity that's devoid of discipleship, as I've already said, throw it in the bin. Jesus even says it's irredeemable, right? He says if, if, a, if salt loses its taste, how are you going to restore its saltiness? So there's something about a compromised Christianity that fundamentally can't be fixed. Let that one sink in for a moment. And I'm reminded of a word that Mike Bickle got while he was in Egypt about 30 years ago, the word of the Lord came to him and he said, I will in one generation change the understanding of Christianity in the earth. That transition is well underway now. You know, there's sort of the old line churches and all that's going on there. And, and while they are still the church, um, there's a distinct lack of saltiness in most of what passes for Christianity today. So, first reason is we can't really restore it to its, to its original pristine state, which, is, which means we need new wineskins. And so if we're going to be disciples, if we're going to have, practice Christianity as it's meant to be practiced, it means we have to create church structures. We have to create a sociology, or if you want to say it, the social software of what it means to be in an organization that we call the church that doesn't really look like anything that we see readily today. That means we have to think outside the box. We've got to return to foundational principles. And, well, that might be painful. Why else do we want to be disciples? Well, there's this little problem in the land. And it's true in your country just like it's in my country. It's really no different. Our societies are very similar. And so that problem is called consumer Christianity. Although on the drive over here tonight, Kirk, you called it, what was it, designer lifestyle? designer lifestyle, designer Christianity. 
Well, what is designer lifestyle, designer Christianity? It means pick and choose what you want. Believe this, but don't believe that. You know, carve out the pieces of Scripture you don't like. Um, and most of that begins with the fundamental premise that the Scripture is not completely reliable, nor is it truly and factually the sole rule for faith and practice in our lives, which is the basic credo of the Protestant Reformation. Said another way, Reformation Day was a couple of days ago on October 31, and 499 years ago on October 31, on Monday, Martin Luther nailed his 95 theses to the church door in Wittenberg, Germany, and so half a millennium later, Protestantism has run out of gas. And that's really true, because if you look at the history of, say, Europe, since the Second World War, 500 million people have fallen away from the faith. 500 million. You know, everyone talks about the coming of the Antichrist and it can't occur, quoting 1 Thessalonians 4, it can't occur until the great apostasy has occurred. Well, it has. We're in the midst of it. In America, the numbers are less clear, but it's safe to say at least 200 million have fallen away from the faith. It might well be 250. But anyway, whatever the number is, it's a big number, not as, just not as big as Europe. Canada, you can pretty much write the whole country off. Canada's got 23 million people. There's about a million Christians in Canada that really mean it. And in Australia, it's about a million Catholics and a million Protestants for a balance of 22 million that have departed from the faith. So between Canada and Australia, you've got another, we'll call it 45 million. Plus America's 200, plus, plus Europe's 500 million. We're getting near three quarters of a billion, and we haven't included New Zealand, nor have we included some of the... Um, uh, communities of faith that once existed in the Middle East and so on, if you can't tell from what I'm saying, Christianity is in crisis globally. And so while many are prophesying a great revival, and I believe there is one coming, I'm in that camp, um, I don't think this is simply a matter of prophesy it and it will come. If you build it, they will come. I think there's quite a bit more to this than that. So consumer Christianity is one of the key problems in the Western church today. Consumer Christianity, or again what Kirk called designer lifestyle, designer Christianity. Now consumer Christians, as all consumers do, they want the best deal at the best price. They want the lowest cost for the product at hand. And in this case, the cost is not normally measured in dollars, but it is measured in things like lifestyle choices and commitments, trade-offs, preferences, if you will. And so, consumer Christians select churches based on, well, things like the lighting, what color carpeting it may have, what is being preached that pleases their ears, what might suit their desires, and they often leave good churches when things get uncomfortable or difficult, and they find churches, shall we say, with less comprehensive requirements. That's what consumer Christianity looks like. 2 Timothy chapter 4 speaks to this. Paul writing near the end of his life and warning Timothy about things to come. Timothy being one of his key disciples. One of his key followers who had adopted his values and his lifestyle and his ministry philosophy. I'm in 1 Timothy, hang on. 
I looked at the passage, I went, this is wrong. First Timothy chapter, uh, 2 Timothy chapter 4, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living, of the de living in the dead and by His appearing in His kingdom. That's a pretty solemn charge. He's saying, Timothy, I'm laying you under oath. But in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, and by His appearing, which is sure, and by His kingdom, which has no end. So this charge is enduring and unbreakable. Preach the Word. Be ready in season and out of season, whether you're ready or not. Whether people will receive it or not. Whether the Gospel is flourishing or not. Preach the Word. And don't just preach. Reprove and rebuke and exhort. Call people to turn away from the foolishness, the idiocy, the wickedness that they have fallen into with complete patience and teaching. So, while you are calling people back from their lunacy, do it patiently and with grace. For the time is coming when people will not endure sound teaching but having itching ears, they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their passions. We could talk about what some of those teachers are teaching. Once saved, always saved. Once you're born again, you cannot sin. Go ahead, practice homosexuality. God made you that way. We could keep on running the table, but you know what I'm talking about. And they will turn away from listening to the truth and wander off into myths. They will stop following good, sound, orthodox, living, teaching, practicing discipleship, and they will pursue myths. Now, you know, in Paul's day, they had a real problem with myths. In fact, the number one myth that they were struggling with was something called Gnosticism. It was a disembodied form of Christianity that didn't really require a historical Jesus. It was all about emanations from the aeon. And I dare say it, that especially I can say it in this house, in some places I'd be stoned for it, but much of what's passing for modern renewed Christianity is Gnosticism. It's myths. It's not grounded in the historical reality of the resurrection of Jesus and the teaching of the Scripture. And Paul says even though many will turn away from listening to the truth, he says it's going to happen. There will be a great falling away. And they will wander into myths. For you, Timothy, Always be sober-minded and endure suffering. Take up your cross, just like the Master said in Luke chapter 14. Endure suffering and do the work of an evangelist. That's really critical. And when we talk tomorrow about competencies of a disciple, you'll see that one of the most important competencies of a disciple, and Paul's addressing it here with Timothy, and that we do not see in our churches today. I, everywhere I go, I see this problem is we do not have people who are evangelizing. It's uncomfortable. Or maybe we don't know how. Maybe we need to go back to just teaching people how to win souls. That's an okay thing to do. I did a, I did a teaching on evangelism here, what, two years ago, three years ago? And then Robbie came through and did something else that kind of meshed with it. Um, but, you know, last year, as near as I can tell, just in my travels, I don't really consider myself an evangelist per se, but... You know, you get around, you meet people, you hold meetings. I led somewhere around 500 people to the Lord. So, I don't know what that works out to, but one a day, one and a half a day, some meetings, five or six would get saved, so that would get me good for a few days. But around 500. This year I've kind of dropped off, and I don't know if it's a function of the meetings or 
Maybe I'm tired. Maybe I don't want to you know, have any more work to do because I really feel like when we win people to the Lord, we have to take care of them too. So you know, the winning of souls creates more work for us. It's good work. It's kingdom work, but it's work. And when you're busy already, sometimes you go, do I really want to have that conversation? But Paul has to say to Timothy, do the work of an evangelist. Why? Well, apparently Timothy kind of slacked off. It's very interesting too because in his apostolic team that was traveling with him as they came south out of Thessalonica into Berea on the second missionary journey, Paul had an apostolic team with him that had Silas who was known as a prophet. He was an apostle. Timothy was functioning as an evangelist. Paul functioned as a teacher. So he had a kind of a, you know, a fully con, uh, invested team of the fivefold, if you want to say it that way. But now here's Timothy. He's got this cushy pulpit in Ephesus. Big church, good income. You know, they, they've kind of made their breakthrough in the city of Ephesus. They've gained a measure of credibility. And Paul says, Timothy kicks him in the backside. Get back to work. Be an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. That's what you are. We are called to be evangelists too. It's interesting, you know, John Wimber, everyone knows that he was the founder, well not founder, but the, the high visibility leader of the Vineyard Movement shortly after its founding. I was in a meeting with a guy not all that long ago and he was looking at my work history and he said, oh, you worked for Vineyard Ministries. He said, did you know Johnny Wimber? I said, well, I don't think any of us would have had the, you know, cojones to call him Johnny Wimber, but yeah, I knew John Wimber. And he said, oh, I knew that guy back in the day. He said, I remember when he was in the Righteous Brothers band. And he said, and then I remember he, uh, he got born again. And he became one of those basically, you know, Jesus freaks. And I said, yeah, I think that would have been a fair characterization, although he would have lacked the, the, you know, the garb. And he said, yeah. And he goes, he led me to the Lord. He said he led 20 of my friends to the Lord. And you know, John used to talk about how prolific of a soul winner he was until he went into the ministry when kind of that cut him off from his interface with the wider society. But, you know, John, I know for a fact, personally, one-to-one -one led over 2,000 people to Christ in Orange County, California. And it may well have been multiples of that because John tended to understate things like that. But the point is, this evangelism thing this is one of the big missing elements in our modern day thing that we call church. You know, we have things that we call revivals, but no one's really getting born again, right? We have a lot of excitement being whipped up, but, and, and I'm not talking about get out there and hit the streets, but I'm, I'm talking about the, I'm talking about the everyday interface of of our lives with those of non-believers whereby we Develop the skill set of winning people to Christ. You know, learning to have a conversation about Jesus does not always come naturally to people. And I don't know how actually is not a good enough reason not to be doing it. It, it is a good enough reason for maybe a few weeks or possibly a few months, but at some point we just have to do it. So, now I've lost my place. Yeah, 2 Timothy 4. I just got to get there. So Paul says, fulfill your ministry, and then he says for, the word for. Now anytime you see the word for, it's there for a reason. So he's saying, do the work of an evangelist and fulfill your ministry because, would be another way of saying it, 
I am already being poured out as a drink offering and the time of my departure has come. Timothy, I'm about to die. I'm going to be executed. And when I'm gone, my ministry will be over. And you are the one through whom what I have done and built will be carried on. I have fought the good fight and I have finished the race and I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day and not only to me, but also to all who have loved His appearing. So he's saying that he's looking forward to his heavenly reward based on good work done here on earth. He's kept the faith and he's, he's conducted his ministry. And so with that, we have to ask ourselves another why question. And that is, why would Paul be so ready to go? Well, because he was confident that he had fully discharged all that was involved in the life of a disciple. We want to get to that place too. We don't want to have this nagging doubt in the back of our mind. And I'm not saying this to lay some slathering guilt trip on you. I've been in those churches. I've sat in those meetings. You've got to get out there and you know, serve the Lord. I'm not trying to do that. But I am trying to call into question whether sometimes we settle into a complacent lifestyle that isn't the life of a disciple and we call it good enough and it's actually not. That's what I am trying to do. So consumer Christianity brings us to that place of mediocrity. I think Timothy was being tempted with that living there in Ephesus on the shores of the Mediterranean in Ephesus with its good life. And consumer Christians, as I've already said, are looking for a good deal at the best price, the lowest cost. And so they, they church hop and they church shop. So let's draw a comparison between disciples and consumer Christians. Consumer Christians give their time to sports and entertainment and holidays and getaways. According to the Australian government census, the typical sold-out Christian in Australia goes to church one Sunday in four. It's 12 times a year. It's probably higher in this church, but that's your typical Christian in Australia. That's a consumerist mindset. By contrast, disciples give time to personal spiritual growth and they give their time to ministry. They practice the craft. They are practitioners. They are pupils. They are methotes. Consumer Christians want the middle class dream for their lifestyle. In fact, when John was alive, I remember going into his office one day and I, was, I had kind of been dumbstruck. I was reading some writings of Donald McGavern, who was the dean of church growth kind of back in the 70s, and he wrote most of the seminal work on church growth theory and so forth. And as I was reading Donald McGavern, he was talking about something called redemption and lift, and in a nutshell what that says is people who are not Christians, when they become Christians, if they practice their Christianity faithfully, over time their wealth level rises. In one sentence that's what it says. And it's not because of magic, it's because if you follow the principles of the kingdom, God will bless you. But not everybody follows those principles reliably. So anyway, I was reading McGavern and I walked into John's office and I said, you know, John, I realized something today. He said, what's that? And I said, I realized I don't actually know how to preach Christianity apart from some sort of upwardly mobile lifestyle tag-on. Because in those days, we were a lot closer to what was then called the faith movement, which basically was all about, you know, follow God and get a Cadillac. It's a little bit crass, but 
there was that strain that ran through it. Consumer Christians want the middle class dream for their lifestyle, and as long as they can get that, then so far so good. But disciples want God's dreams to change the world. They don't embrace their own dreams, they embrace His. Consumer Christians seek personal comfort in diametric opposition to what Jesus said about taking up your cross and carrying it. Disciples sacrifice comfort to see lives changed by the power of God. Consumer Christians seek acceptance from the world, usually wrapped up in the language of they're irreasonable and tolerant. They're not condemning and critical. Disciples, as long as they are true to the teaching of the Master, will accept rejection from the world if it comes. And as a result, they are sometimes persecuted with this kind of nomenclature. They are extremists, they are intolerant, they are troublemakers. They don't conform to our customs and cultures. This is why the Chinese government right now is cracking down on the church in China. When I was in China a month ago, um, I went into the church that I commonly work with there, and one of their own had been at a wedding reception, and he was taken by the police right there at the wedding reception, and uh, had not been seen since that had occurred a few months before. And the whole premise right now behind the Chinese government is, you know, these Christians are advocating customs that are contrary to our ways. If that sounds like something right out of the pages of the New Testament, it should. Um, so that's what they're doing. And so as a result, they're requiring all churches to register with the government. Of course, anytime a government anywhere in the world registers anything, you know what's about to happen. They're either going to tax it or outlaw it. Maybe both. Right? Consumer Christians live for the praise of people. In, in biblical nomenclature, they fear men. Disciples live for the praise of God. They look for the well done, thou good and faithful servant. What Paul was saying, henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of glory. And so they live for the praise of God. In other words, they fear God rather than men. Consumer Christians give to Jesus when it is convenient and comfortable, when it fits their budget and they can afford 50 bucks extra to throw in the offering plate. Disciples give to God their all and they embrace the calling to serve Him. It's a lot more than money, but it certainly does include money. And don't think for a minute that you can actually be a disciple without money being involved. Consumer Christians are focused on their wants, their needs, their problems, maybe their dreams, their dreams, not God's. When, when God's dreams become their dreams, that's okay. We're talking about their dreams. Disciples are focused on God's heart and mind, and they seek to solve the problems of others. They lay their life down for a friend. Consumer Christians, well, they spend their lives on their own gain, amassing their superannuation account, getting a second, maybe a third home, buying that boat, that car, that whatever it is that they wanted to have that they just have to have, whereas disciples spend their lives on the kingdom of God and building it, and they reach, they reach out for 
the reality of the kingdom as Jesus said, violent men and women take the kingdom by force, but He also said it is hard for the rich to enter the kingdom of heaven. Not that they cannot, but rarely do they because there's something about what happens with wealth and not just wealth, the comfort of acceptance and being accepted in the right social circles that you took so long to break into. You finally got invited to that golf course club that you've wanted to belong to. You suddenly are invited to that thing that meets at the top of the highest tower in Brisbane, and you're paying $10,000 a month just to be a member, but you know when you go there, you're among the who's who of the city, and so nobody wants to walk away from all that. And all of those things become shackles. They become restraints. And in the end, those people become ineffective for the kingdom of God. And that's why they don't enter it. It's not that they couldn't, it's just that they don't. And there's a whole scale of that that comes down from the very highest all the way down to the level that most of us live at in day-to-day -day life because all of this stuff is swirling around us. Now, I've just given you a comparison list, and so with that, I'm going to crack open this bottle of water, take a pause, and I'm going to ask you, give me some comparisons from your own world you don't have to rat yourself out, but things that you've seen, the comparison between a consumer Christian and a disciple, what does that look like in the world that you live in every day? Maybe I'm talking to the wrong crowd. To summarize that, I think a lot of times, you know, again, the realm of economics, mammon is a cruel master. Um, oftentimes, career ambitions, especially when you're younger, you know, the front end of your career. Or if you're an entrepreneur, same thing, you're worrying about, you know, keeping the business going and making it big and all the rest of it. On the one hand, we, we want to do well at what we do. We are ambitious to be well-pleasing unto the Lord, and we want to have enough surplus that we can actually help others but sometimes the career the job the business becomes an end unto itself rather than a means to serving the Lord to put us in front of people that we might not otherwise be in front of to pre create wealth that we can use to advance the kingdom and there is a very big difference between whether we're doing it for the money or for the Lord with the money as a tool big 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 difference in other words how you earn your living is frankly I, don't, I mean, I think the Lord cares, but that's not his highest priority. What he does care about is, are you serving as a disciple wherever you are? Neil? Yep, so Neil's talking about the air of superiority uh, rather than the mind of a, of a servant. And of course, with the air of superiority always comes judgment. Lord, I thank you that I am not like... <laughs> that one there, as the Pharisees did. So there's a gauge right there when you have that superiority. Absolutely, it can be scary, no question about it. So she said, you know, God's calling us to go to the unknown rather than to live in the realm of the known. And a lot of us spend a considerable part of our living, you know, of our lives, our waking hours trying to organize all the inputs so that everything is that the outcomes are knowable in advance there's high predictability um, but you know in the realm of God he likes to he likes to let people out of cages and sometimes we put ourselves in cages we don't always realize you know I often think about 
uh, Levi. I, I have a message that I wrote several months ago, and I preached it down in Melbourne called the calling of uh, the calling of Matthew. And it, you know, it's based on the passage in Matthew's gospel of his own calling. His name was Levi. He was a Jewish man, and he was a tax collector who had gotten a medallion from the Roman government to collect tax money. And you know, being a tax collector was a pretty lucrative gig. The way the Romans set it up, you know, you had they they told you what you had to collect, <clears throat> but you were allowed to collect a lot more than that. And you had the full power of the Roman army, the garrison that was in your town, to enforce all that. So tax collectors made out pretty well. And Levi was sitting in his tax booth in Capernaum, and Jesus walked by and he said, follow me. And he threw all that aside to go to the wild whatever. After Jesus died, his name was changed to Matthew. Matthew was the first apostle into Iran. He converted most of Iran. Um, you know, he's not one of the big names, right? He's not Peter, James, and John, so people don't even think about him. But, uh, you know, I think, I think converting most of Iran is a pretty good thing to have on your scorecard. But think of what he had to give up in order to get to that. And Paul talks of this, right? I count it as loss. I was a Jew of Jews, a Hebrew of Hebrews, educated under Gamaliel. I'm, I, ha I was in line to join the Sanhedrin. And <laughs> threw it all aside. All right, so I think we get the idea between consumer Christian and disciple. Let's talk about this metrically. George Barna is a researcher. Of, he's a social researcher. He's a Christian. He does much more than church work, but he certainly does a lot of polling and studies and statistical analysis of churchly trends. And he wrote a book called Think Like Jesus. And here are some facts and figures. Now, these all come from the U.S., but... There is so much similarity between Australia and the United States. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> There's so much similarity that um, the numbers don't really vary much between our two countries. So only 2%, that's 1 in 50, of young adults in the church have what we might term a Christian worldview. Barna described it for purposes of taking his survey as they subscribe to, or believe wholeheartedly, six core Christian doctrines such as the virgin birth, Jesus is God in the flesh, Jesus was crucified for our sins, Jesus rose from the dead. 2%, 1 in 50. Now, in biological circles, meaning wildlife biology, if you only recruit and that's the term they use, they call it recruitment, if you only recruit 2% of the young of each year's hatchlings or birth, that species is bound to die out. That's a terrifying trend. I've got a whole other conference I do called Quo Vadis. It's Latin for where are you going? And it is all about the Australian church. All the numbers are Australian numbers. Kate and I crunched a bunch of data that came out of, the, came out of Canberra and um, I go around and I, I teach it as a leadership-only event. Um, and I've done it in a couple cities. and um, It's shaken a lot of people up. But, but this is your problem, Australia. This is your problem. Um, by a two-to-one margin, the unbelieving youth outnumber the believing youth in this country. And of the believing youth, only 2% actually subscribe to real Christianity from a doctrinal standpoint. That's a catechetical problem. That's a didactic problem. That means we need teachers, not prophets. 
And I know that's not popular to say, but it's, it's the truth all the same, and the numbers bear me out. Here's another one. Only 14%, so that's about one in seven. About 14% of Christians believe the Bible teaches absolute moral truth and is relevant to everyday life. One in seven. Now what that means is they're either not reading it at all because they don't think it matters, or what they do read, they, they pick and choose what they want to pick and choose. And so the idea of the, um, the authority of Scripture has been compromised. That's one of the fundamental doctrines of the Reformation too. And that's why I said we're 500 years downrange from Martin Luther and the Reformation has run out of steam. It's run out of gas. Here's another one. Only 23%, so that's under one in four, of churchgoers attend a small group or secondary meeting each week. So they come to church on Sunday, if they come, but less than one in four do anything beyond that during the week to further augment their faith. And it could, I'm, you know, for that purpose, it could be a prayer meeting, a Bible study, a, you know, evangelism thing, whatever, but that's how they're measuring it. Only 29%, that's about one in three, a little less than that actually, volunteer one hour or more of their time outside of church services each week. One hour. Jesus said to the disciples, could you not tarry with me one hour? So we could lift that out of context and apply it here, but it tells you that the church is understaffed, and so when we talk about the mission of the church, query who's carrying it out. Only 30%, that's again less than one in three, of churchgoers believe, now get this, less than one in three believe that there is any significant difference between the teachings of the Bible, the Book of Mormon, and the Quran. And you wonder why all meat sold in your land is halal. About 32% of churchgoers, we're getting close to one in three, are divorced. That compares with 33% of the general population. So how are we doing with our sanctity of marriage position? I know it takes two. I'm in a marriage. I know how difficult marriage can be at times. I know how good it can be when it's good, too. But the point is, if we don't look any different from the world, why would the world be running to our gates to join up? Now, anybody who's been through a divorce knows how painful it is, so nobody in their right mind would ever really want to go through a divorce. Sometimes it's the only way out. I know that. But if they look at the church and they say, well, that big problem in my life doesn't have a solution in the church. Again, why would they want to come? And that too is a problem of discipleship because Jesus said it was for hardness of heart that Moses granted you a writ of divorce. So the most important part of divorce is hardness of heart. And you know, generally speaking, when you think of Christians who divorce, what happens? One or both lose their faith and then they say, this is hard, we can't do this anymore and they head out the door. I have a very good friend here in this country, not in this city, but um, and his wife left him earlier this year. Uh, they had been a part of a vineyard church, and she lost her faith. She just drifted away, and one day they were watching TV, and she said, turn off the TV for a moment. And so he did, and she looked at him, and she said, and, and he knew it was coming because she'd been getting colder and more distant and colder and more distant for over a year. But anyway, she just looked at him, and she said, I'm leaving. I'll be gone in a week. And that was it. Marriage was over. He's still a strong believer. He'd tried everything he knew how, 
But there you see it right there. She still considers herself a Christian and she says, God wouldn't want me to be unhappy. I know because I talked with both of them. Over 53% of Christians, that's something above one and two, do not believe homosexuality is a sin. Now, this is a fundamental problem, not just of doctrine, but it tells you something about where they view the Bible. Because the Bible is unambiguous about this every place it talks about homosexuality. And just so with bisexuality and transgenderism and all the rest of it. Over 60% of Christians, so approaching two out of three, over 60% of Christians believe that as long as a person does good things in life, she will go to heaven. So, works righteousness. Two-thirds. Now, I'll give you a statistic that goes along this, along with this. Randy Clark, the famous Randy Clark, not long ago was talking to the head of the Southern Baptist Convention in the United States. That's our largest denomination. There are 18 million Christians, so-called, in the Southern Baptist Convention. And Randy was talking with this guy, and Randy said, Randy is a former Southern Baptist, and uh, he's, you know, he's done a lot of work among the Baptists because of his Baptist roots. But one time they told him he would never amount to anything and they didn't even want to graduate him from seminary. Of course, now that he's Randy Clark, they want him everywhere. But anyway, nothing succeeds like success. Anyway, he was talking to the head of the SBC, which is our largest denomination, and as I said, 18 million people. So getting near the entire population of your country. Um, and he said to the head of the SBC, he said, I don't believe that more than 20% of the uh, SBC is actually born again. And he said it may be as low as 10%. So somewhere between 1.8 and 3.6 million out of 18 million. And the head of the SBC said, I completely agree with you. The rest of these people are pew sitters. They're not disciples. They're filling the church, but... As Billy Sunday, the famous baseball player who became an evangelist, famously said, going to church does not make you a Christian any more than standing in a garage makes you a car. But over 60% of all Christians believe that as long as a person does good things in life, she will go to heaven, or he will go to heaven. So, I'd like to think better of this crowd because it's Pine Rivers, and I know Kirk and Nicole, but having said that, it's likely that there are some of you sitting here tonight, probably in this section, because that's where most of you are sitting. It's a little thinner here on the wings. But there might be a few over there in the back row, or... Well, anyway. Um, who, who actually... <laughs> David Hockey. <laughs> Anyway, there might be a few who subscribe to that belief. That's called Pelagianism. It's a heresy. It's also known as work righteous, works righteousness. Wait, we're almost done. Over 70%, that's more than two out of three, of young adults raised in church do not attend church weekly. Of course, that shouldn't surprise you when only 2% of them have any kind of a Christian worldview. In other words, they have no philosophical, they have no theological, they have no superstructure intellectually for what they believe. Why? Because we've emptied out the content of our faith for experience-based Christianity. And as a result, they grow up and two out of three say, I'm out of here. As soon as I don't have to go, mom and dad aren't holding the proverbial gun to my head. I'm gone. And that is very much happening in the Australian church right now. And finally, over 78%, that's basically four out of five 
Christians do not believe the devil is real, has a personality, but rather view Satan as a bad force. That's, that's the playing field right now. Why do we need disciples? Because the only way to counteract all of what I've just said is to raise true and authentic disciples. And that takes intentionality, and with it a lot of work. It takes a plan. It takes knowing what we're trying to hit. That's why you want to be here tomorrow. I'm just showing you the problem tonight. Why else do we want to be disciples? Well, disciples make disciples because things reproduce after their own kind. So if you want to see the grand and glorious shining revival that all have been prophesying and waiting for, the only way to get there is to become one yourself and then reproduce more disciples. And anything less than that isn't that. And that means, well, you're going to come and die. Jesus said, if anyone would come after me, let him come and die. You will die to your own desires. You will die to your own pleasures. You will die to your own time use. You will die to, well, just about everything that goes with a consumerist mentality. And you will become one who, for the cause of the Lamb, for the sake of the Master, will lay down everything that goes with middle class living, whether American or Australian, in order to pursue the high calling of Christ. And at that coal face, at that point of interface, you will there absolutely decide whether you will be like the rich young ruler. That when Jesus said, get rid of what is holding you back. Sell what you have and come follow me. Oh, I know you're righteous. I know outwardly you look good. But this is what it's going to take if you really want to come with me. Rich young man, you could be all in if you want to be. And in the end, he couldn't do it. And that, I fear, is the condition of most of the Western church. And I will include in that your country and mine. So when we say that disciples make disciples because things reproduce after their own kind, keep that idea firmly in mind. Things reproduce after their own kind. You will reproduce the kind of Christianity you are living. Things reproduce after their own kind. And that thought will color everything else we're going to discuss this weekend. Acts 6-7 says this. We're almost done. And the Word of God continued to increase. And the number of disciples multiplied. Mark that word. Multiplied. Not added. This is multiplicative growth. You want to know how you overcome a rising tide of secularism? Multiplicative growth. Exponential growth. Be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth is what the Lord told Adam and Eve. And later Noah. The number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. The Word of God continued to increase and the number of disciples multiplied. Not Christians, not believers, disciples. Real live hardcore, nose to the grindstone, going for it to the uttermost, these multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. Things reproduce after their own kind. The normal Christian life is a life of increase. That means numerical growth. If things aren't growing, something's wrong. 
So we should, we should ask ourselves, what's the something? Let's figure that out. You know, if you're running a business, David, when, when you're not making money, don't you stop and ask what's going wrong? Sales aren't high enough. Costs are too high. Taxes are too high. Too many employees. I don't know, but the mix is wrong. Whatever. But you figure out what it is because you want to fix that. The normal Christian life is the Word of God continued to increase, not decrease, not shrink. Christianity should not be on the retreat. And the reason it's on the retreat is our Christianity is worthless. It is only worthy to be trodden underfoot. We need to reformulate it. We need to remake it. We need a new wineskin. We need a new expression of it. That's what we're going to talk about. The normal Christian life is fueled by disciples, not by believers, and certainly not by mere Christians. Because the normal Christian life is a robust, all-in kind of thing. And, as I've already strongly hinted, the normal Christian life is all about increase via multiplication, not addition. If we're just going to add people by onesies and twosies, something's wrong. But multiplication would be that every man and woman, and even many of the youth, would be leading several to the Lord a year. I don't want to put a specific number on it, but I'll tell you a story about my friend Victoria Hernandez. She lives in Southern California, and I met her several years ago. Um, she's a Mexican-American, and um, she's, she's a real estate agent nominally. That's how she earns her living. She's a 41-year-old single mother, and um, a few years ago she started coming to my meetings, and the Holy Spirit arrested her and she turned into some sort of fire-breathing dragon. I call her mi evangelista when we speak Spanish. My little, my little evangelist with a feminine ending on it. Victoria, in a typical week, leads seven to ten people to the Lord in a typical week. Showing real estate, going down to the park, I met her and her friend Sonia for lunch one day. I walked into the restaurant and I was about three minutes late and I walked in and they had a homeless guy and another guy waiting and they were leading the homeless guy to the Lord while they were waiting for me to show up to meet them and then they prayed for the guy behind him to be healed. He got healed and then they led him to the Lord. That's their life. That's their normal life. Seven to ten people a week. Well, 50 weeks, 52 weeks in a year, on the 10 end of the range, that's 520 a year. How are you doing out there? That's multiplicative growth. That's what we need to put in our mind as normal. And if it's not happening, then what's wrong? Why? Instead of just saying, yeah, this is the way it is, oh well, ho-hum, we, we start asking hard questions about, well, what do we need to fix? Well, we've got to tune the mix here. Not to, not to heap guilt and shame on ourselves, but just to say, what we're calling the normal life isn't actually what the Bible calls the normal life. Paul saw that same kind of dynamic in his ministry when he went through central Turkey and then into the southeastern corner of Europe. So all through the New Testament, this is what it looks like when played out. The normal Christian life is increased by multiplication. And if we were each leading seven to ten people to the Lord a week, Brisbane wouldn't stand a chance. I read, I read recently, interesting factoid, if you take a piece of India paper, 
I'm using, you know, an old-fashioned analog Bible. I know it's kind of old school, but anyway, there you go. That there, that's not India paper, but it's close. India paper is even thinner than this. <clears throat> but old-fashioned, the, the high-quality Bibles that you buy from like Cambridge University Press for <clears throat> $250 or so, they print their Bibles on India paper. If you take a piece of India paper and you fold it 50 times, do you have any idea how tall the stack will get? Just take a guess. Fifty folds of that. Seventeen million miles. The moon is 240,000 miles away. That's what multiplicative growth will get you. Brisbane would not stand a chance in the face of multiplicative growth. This rising tide of secularism would be like, meh! It's what happened in Ephesus. It says the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed against all of the godlessness, the darkness, the false gods, everything else. Discipleship lies at the core of kingdom breakout, exponential growth, true kingdom evangelism, but don't think for a minute that comes easily. Stephen paid for it with his life. Paul nearly did and ultimately did. You may be hated, you may be drawn, taken into synagogues, you may be taken before kings and governors. We read those things, they meant a lot in those days, and in some parts of the world they still do. My friends in China live under that. I have a friend in Nepal, he wrote me today, and he said he was supposed to have been arrested yesterday, but an angel of the Lord appeared and whisked him away from the police who were coming to get him. I thought, well, that sounds biblical. And I wrote back and I said, what were you supposed to be arrested for? And he said, um, converting children under the age of 16. And I wrote back and I said, may it be, I can't think of a better reason to be arrested. And I also can't think of a better reason to be rescued by an angel. Why? Why do we want to be disciples? Why do we want to be disciples? We want to be disciples for this reason. That the Lamb would have the fruit of His passion. Because discipleship is a major key. It might be the missing key. But I'll stop short of that because there are some other things we could talk about that also matter. <clears throat> but it might be the most important key to bringing the revival that we've all been talking about, praying about, singing about, seeking for years. Kirk was the one that asked me to talk about discipleship. But that's because Kirk's a savvy guy. If I give the message, it directs all the incoming fire at me if I may rattle people's cages and make you feel uncomfortable. We can't have the revival that we talk about. We can't even have an authentic Christian experience unless we take on board the competencies of a discipleship lifestyle and culture. And so tomorrow, we're going to talk about that in two parts. And with that, I'll take a few questions. I think what you're asking me, but correct me if I'm hearing you wrong, I think what you're asking me is, if we follow Jesus, does it over time take us away from our interface with non-believers? Okay. Um, 
the way most of us live our Christian faith, yes, we do ghettoize over time. That's not the Master's plan, nor is it the Master's way, but it is the way most of us do end up living. That's one of the reasons why you all want to be here tomorrow. I'm going to talk about how to remain outward facing and how to continue having those interactions with people. It does require a lifestyle adjustment. And that's what's difficult about it because most people settle into the most comfortable lifestyle that they can. It's the path of least resistance. And it's, well, it's the very issue that Jesus spoke to in the passage that we started out with when he says, if you won't take up your cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple, meaning you've got to let go of your comfort. And that means you might actually have to interface with people that you wouldn't have interfaced with. You can't simply have your comfortable existence. Now, that doesn't mean you give up on all your Christian friends and never see them and you know, go, go live with the sinners and then ultimately let them influence you and you become a, a sinner once again. That's, not, that's obviously not the right answer. But it may require some adjustments of how you use your time and your energy and your money in order that you can pursue all that God intended for you. Right. No other questions? Thirty-two against thirty-three. Um I think the Chinese are doing it pretty well. Um the the, the most recent numbers I've seen say that by twenty twenty, so that's three years from now effectively. I mean, we're still in 2016, but it's all but done. We must be doing something right. Every time things get really good, that happens out there. Um, so effectively, three years from now, uh, China should have 200 million Christians. It will be the most Christian nation on earth in three years. And by 2030, it's estimated that at least 500 million will be Christians if the current rates of growth continue. So that'll be 13 years from now. China's doing it pretty well. Um, I know of specific congregations that seem to be doing it reasonably well, but system-wide, maybe not so much. And you know, part of our reason for this is that we have substituted a model of Christianity that now I'm really going to tread on thin ice here, but here we go. <clears throat> We've substituted a model of Christianity that says, go to a conference, get a word, get whacked, go home. That's like the high point of Christian experience. And when we look at the pages of the New Testament, and we look at the way the disciples lived there, I'm sure they were getting whacked. There's very little doubt about that in my mind. And I'm, I have very little doubt that, you know, big-name preachers came to town, whether they were called apostles or prophets or whatever, and crazy stuff happened. We see it right there in Acts chapter 8. We see it in Acts 19. So I have very little doubt that that was going on. It's more what went on between all of that. And maybe because the transport systems were less advanced than what we have now, you probably didn't have, you know, 
60 big-name preachers come through town in 52 weeks. And so, you know, people sort of, you know, run relentlessly to the next big event, and that leaves very little time for the actual practice of the craft. That may have been a factor, but the point is they were, they were living out their faith in community, and they were carrying out the lifestyle and disciplines of a disciple. And in that, there was transformation in their communities because, as I already said, there's nothing magical about a plane ride. And so, you know, they, they took it on themselves to own the ground where they stood. The, the Lord spoke through Jeremiah the prophet to the Jews that were carried away to exile in Babylon, and he said, pray for the peace of this city. If it prospers, you prosper. Well, if Brisbane should turn to the Lord and become a, a, an island of holiness and a, you know, a place where people fear God more than, well, anything else that you could name. And that became the predominant motif over this region. Um, that would be good for everybody. It would be good for us. It would be good for our prosperity and wealth. It would reduce lawsuits and crime. Our children would grow up in better schools. Drug use would drop. Um, probably our children would be more obedient. Uh, because they would be around friends who weren't themselves sowing discord and rebellion. I mean, the whole thing would just become a virtuous cycle. And we really need to have that kind of an, a, a, a mind frame clearly in our minds that this is, this is what we're shooting for. So as you can see, this is way bigger than just church life. This is about societal transformation. It has to be. Anything less than that isn't that. All right, anything else? Father, we thank you for the Word of God. <clears throat> thank you that 2,000 years ago, a physician named Luke gave up his practice to travel with a man named Paul. <clears throat> and he wrote this gospel, a mere 10 verses of which we read tonight, that address this very core problem of discipleship, which Jesus preached one day, apparently while he was on the while he was walking. He didn't even stop and set up a pulpit. And he just turned and said to the people that were following him that they couldn't love any relationship with anybody more than him. They had to be willing to give up their comforts and their lifestyle for him. And they needed to plan for the long journey, not the short one. Because life, discipleship is a lifestyle that lasts a lifetime. Father, we've come together this weekend to study discipleship. And we'd like to ask something of you boldly. If we can articulate what a disciple is and we can come to a point of view where we decide we're going to live that life would you give us the revival we've been talking about so we can quit talking about it and start living it? Could we make that trade with you? Abraham bargained with you for the heart of Sodom. We want to bargain with you for the heart of Brisbane and the entire coast of Queensland all the way, all the way to Cooktown. Why not, Father? You've done it before. They say it can't be done in Australia, that Australians are too hard. I don't believe it. Father, give us this land. 
Give us the coal fields of Queensland and the scorched red earth of its interior. Give us, give us its coral reefs and give us all the people who work these who work these places. Last year when I was here, Lord, we had words about meteors falling over Brisbane and igniting the eucalyptus forests on fire and igniting the very city of Brisbane on fire. Lord, we're a year later and nothing's burning yet. The Master said, I have come to kindle a fire on the earth and how I wish it were already kindled. Father, this is the last outpost in the entire Western world where gay marriage is not the law of the land and the barbarians are at the gates. Father, there is still a 9% of the people in this country who are true and believing Christians, but they are silenced. These are Elijah's 7,000 that have not bowed the knee to Baal. Father, would you give us Queensland? Would you give us Brisbane? If we can just figure this discipleship thing out and get it right. Father, we're tired of preaching about it. We're tired of singing about it and talking about it. I believe the fields are white for harvest right now. I believe we could see the beginnings of a move of God right now. Kind of a crazy altar call, but if something of what I said tonight, I'll just say poked you or made you uncomfortable. And you realize that something about the way you live, something about the way you interact with the Christian faith is out of compliance with what I was talking about. I want you to come up here and I want you to kneel. Not stand, kneel on the carpet. Unless your knees are bad, you can get a pass if you have bad knees. But otherwise, come up here and kneel and do your business with the Lord. Give over to Him the things that are holding you back from being a disciple. You know what they are, and I don't need to know. Because Jesus is worthy of it. And because without that, all the rest of what we talk about in discipleship will be meaningless.
Father, we're gathered here tonight to honor our King. And we're gathered because we want to embrace discipleship in its totality. But we do want to count the cost of building that tower and going out to war. Because we're signing an open-ended commitment and everything in us resists that. So we want to count that cost and say yes. Yes, it's worth it. Yes, Jesus is worth it. The Bible tells us we're going to cast our crowns at His feet. That implies we have crowns to cast. And the only way that we will have crowns is what Paul said to Timothy. Henceforth there is laid, in, laid up for me the crown of righteousness. And the only way to earn that crown is to be a disciple. So Lord, all these things that are represented by the people who are here, we want to put them in front of you. Let them become our own offering. And Lord, as we give them over to you, do what you need to with them. Up to and including consuming them as a whole burnt offering so they are gone from our lives. If it doesn't take that much, so be it. In the vineyard tradition, we usually turn most ministry times into healing or empowering. I'm not going to do that tonight. I'll just leave you to finish it up as long as you need to take. Maybe we'll get some of that tomorrow. But don't rush this. If you're doing business with God, be as thorough as you need to be. And we'll see you tomorrow morning.